This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen. Thank you very much for joining us today and welcome to the Explorathon Lunch Bites podcast, a chance for you to hear about some of the latest research projects coming from the University of Aberdeen while you enjoy your lunch break. Explorathon 2020 is a week-long programme of events being brought to you by the University of Aberdeen and other Scottish universities as part of European Researchers' Night, which this year takes place on the 27th of November. European Researchers' Night is a Europe-wide public event which tries to bring researchers closer to the public. And this week, amongst other events, the University of Aberdeen is bringing you a daily podcast giving you the opportunity to hear from some of our local researchers about their projects in a range of different disciplines. All events being run as part of the Explorathon 2020 programme can be found on the website at www.explorathon.co.uk and the programme is being funded by the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Programme under the Mare Slodowska Curie Actions Grant Agreement 955 376. After listening to today's podcast, please let us know any comments or feedback by contacting us on Twitter or Facebook at ERNScott or use the hashtag Explorathon20. You can also put any questions or comments to us by email by contacting the University's Public Engagement with Research Unit at Peru, and that's spelt P-E-R-U, at abdn.ac.uk. Now, the National Decommissioning Centre was opened in 2019 as part of the Aberdeen City Region Deal. It is a partnership between the University of Aberdeen and the Oil and Gas Technology Centre. It combines industry expertise with academic excellence and the centre is working to become the global leader in addressing decommissioning challenges. The centre currently hosts a number of PhD students across a range of areas associated with decommissioning. And I'm joined today by one of those students, Arturo Regalado, who will be talking about his PhD, which seeks to assess how different financial instruments used to ensure financial security for decommissioning impacts government, industry, and maximising economic recovery. Arturo, thank you for joining me. Hi, Rachel. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Uh, thank you for having me here. It's really great to have these outreach uh, opportunities for us to show our research and also to speak to a wider audience. So thank you very much. Great to have you with us. So why is financial security required in offshore decommissioning? Well, first of all, uh, it is an obligation. Uh, uh, at risk of stating the obvious, it is an obligation. Uh, the UK is bounded by different international uh, agreements and also by UK's domestic legislation. The famous OSPAR decision 98.3 or the Petroleum Act of 1998 is amended, especially by the Energy Act 2008, mandate the need for decommissioning and also the possibility for the UK, uh, CS, for the UK government or the regulator to set aside uh, funds from operators to, to secure cash or resources enough 
to meet the decommissioning liabilities. Um, so first of all, that's the, that's the thing. There's an obligation, a legal obligation, but there are also some practical reasons. Uh, left in place structures have environmental impacts and can also cause problems, for example, for navigation, for fishery. Uh, but perhaps more importantly, the regulatory framework for the decommissioning in the UK has an underpinning principle to protect taxpayers of the risk of uh, funding decommissioning liabilities in case any operators default. Uh, because there is an obligation to the commission and the commissioning must happen. If an operator does not fulfill the liability, then it's up to the government to, to make it, probably using resources from tax income uh, that will put the taxpayers at risk. Uh, and make no mistake, the amount of resources needed to the commission are quite large. Uh, in a recent report for 2020, the Oil and Gas Authority expects the total cost of decommissioning the full UKCS offshore inventory to be between 40 billion and 66 billion pounds. It's massive. Uh, so the government needs to make sure that there are enough resources to cover uh, the decommissioning when it should happen. Uh, it really is a challenge. And why is your research project important for the offshore industry? Uh, well, uh, I... I vision my, my research project to have um, that it to be useful to decision making both for the companies and for the government. Uh, in my case, I am assessing now effects on seven economic indicators from the financial instruments uh, to secure um, uh, financial resources to the commissioning liability. For example, of value, the cessation of production, uh, the years, number of years paying security, the burden to tax income, also some tax reliefs. So it is important because operators will be able to answer a ton of questions. For example, which instrument to use that can maximize the value of a project I'm undertaking? What instrument is the cheapest and will allow me to push cessation of production back as much as possible? Uh, for how many years will I be paying security? Uh, for the government, it's important because they need to answer questions like, given a portfolio of the commissioning projects in the future, uh, how much revenue am I expected to receive? And if I give reliefs to the decommissioning uh, by security instruments, how much of that will be uh, lost for, for income in the, in, in, to the Treasury? What's the net result? What guidance should I provide the operators regarding which financial instrument to use? And this has become really important nowadays in the current mar market uh, downturn. As you may know, prices have uh, slashed, basically. Uh, they are now at around $30, $30 And all these questions are now more pressing than ever with uh, cash-strapped companies uh, nowadays to add a burden by decommissioning security, it's, it's, uh, it's difficult for the companies. So we need an important or an understanding or detailed understanding of how the economic effects of these instruments reflect on the operators and also on the government. Mm -hmm. And so you've touched on some of the um, instruments um, that are used to provide financial security. Can you tell us a bit more about the other instruments? What are they? Uh, yes, of course. So Section 38, uh, specifically Section 38A of the Petroleum Act of 1988, as amended by the Energy Act 2008, accepts five types of uh, securities to protect funds. Uh, a show of assets or a cash deposit a performance bond, an insurance policy, and a letter of credit. Uh, this may seem like a very small list, but there are many difficulties when trying to make empirical assessments. In reality, these five instruments I just listed can be of any measure you might imagine. For example, there are differences because uh, different naming conventions exist, 
there are variations to the mechanics and workings in the same instrument. So a performance bond may have some clauses uh, for one operator, but have different for another. And they can be also personalized uh, to the contractual clauses based on each instrument and each negotiation with each provider and uh, each operator. So this list that may seem small is really quite large. Uh, and it's difficult to find a size-fit-all approach to the decommissioning uh, securities. Uh, normally in the UK, the most common ones are the letter of credit, the performance bond, and also a uh, deposit to a trust fund. Uh, however, they, they each have their own uh, pros and cons. It's difficult to for all of the operators to know which one to use. And so this uh, the research wants to show for each of these cases and assuming different possibilities, what would be the best instrument to use in each case. Great, that's really interesting. And so what are you finding are the effects of these uh, different instruments? Uh, well, yeah, uh, as of now, I am focusing still on a pre-tax financial model. I am using some financial simulations uh, on five different fields that strive to be representative of the wider fields in the UKCS. And I'm doing this still at a pre-tax um, pre moment because taxation can introduce some distortions into the mechanics of the different workings of the instruments. So at this point of the research, now eight months into my research, I wanted to begin to try to understand the raw effects of this. Uh, and I've concentrated in both, in the letter of credit and the surety bond. And I find that at first at first point, by using the middle point assumptions for the model, uh, value decreases by about 5% or 8%, but the COP date, the session of production date, is brought forward by one period. Uh, so there's the first distortion to what would happen if we didn't need to use any financial security instruments. But the things got uh, pretty messy when you begin introducing some assumptions and make some changes and try to do some sensitivity analysis. For example, if oil prices are really low, like in today's environment, uh, and the securities are introduced into the model, we find that the project can become uneconomical. An otherwise economical project can then be neg and then produce negative value, and the operators would choose not to to go into it. Also, for example, if by any means the engineers uh, have troubles with deciding how much the production profile will change or how the decline in the field goes, you can have one third of the value of the project slashed. And in some cases, you can also bring forward cessation of production by three years uh, of each project. So the instruments apparently do not make a lot of harm, but when you find and make the comparisons, you see that they actually make distortions and changes to their behavior. And here's an important uh, or an interesting fact I've been finding in my research now uh, about how the total cost of the security changes uh, when all these assumptions of oil price, of operating costs, of the commissioning costs changes. And the thing is that the total cost of the financial security depends on the number of years paying security and also the remaining net present value of the project at the point where you evaluate. Uh, it's a difficult relationship, it's not linear, and it, guarantees, and it warrants some more understanding. This is to say, for example, people will think that, okay, if the commissioning costs increase or the operating costs increase, uh, we need to have more production, then our costs will also increase. But that may not be the case if the number of years paying security is reduced. So a lot more uh, study needs to be done in this area to just get to the sweet spot of how the total cost of a security will change as all these conditions and uncertainty uh, changes. So here, what I would like to say is that uh, apparently, or what I'm finding is that a size fits all 
approach does not exist and also uh, that we need to, to to better understand this we still don't know how these effects will will, will trend into a project valuation so you've said that that one size fits all approach doesn't seem to benefit the industry what alternative yeah. instruments or measurements could be put in place well uh, so as for the topic of alternative instruments is difficult to say. I mean, the legislation is clear on which of those instruments uh, are available. So it may be not fruitful or unfruitful to, to decide, okay, you know, we can find maybe these all other instruments that could be put in place, which are also by, by, the, by any means a ton, uh, very different. So maybe a more fruitful question is to come out with how we can make some incentives through the fiscal system or to the regulatory framework to make these instruments more better for the industry and also some uh, more attractive. For example, if you have a trust fund where you will be putting resources from the beginning of the, of the production stream and to set them aside, if you have tax deductions on those, uh, on those deposits, it will be attractive for operators because they will they will not see this as you know having cash stored and making anything and you know cash has a, an opportunity cost it can be used for another development uh, it cannot be used in this case for example to take this this year it can use to meet the month's payroll for all the company uh, so in in these current market conditions uh, it's really important that the companies are not cash strapped uh, and so a secure securities or fiscal systems that allow securities to have some reliefs and make some changes to it might be useful. So I will be focusing in my research on seeing how changes to these fiscal systems can benefit some of the instruments and can give really good uh, results. Also, for example, uh, as I mentioned, one of the security instruments defined in the legislation is a cash deposit. But cash deposits has this same issue. Uh, cash has an opportunity cost. Uh, and that's why, to some extent, letter of credits and performance bonds have been used most widely in, in the UKCS because they have low administrative costs. They also just need to, to put a fee on the, over the decommissioning provision and are easy to manage. Uh, a trust fund is more difficult to do, and all other cash deposits uh, are not are have an opportunity cost. So maybe by changing the rules of the game through the regulatory framework, uh, we can find that we can have a sweet spot of, of an, a sweet spot between the trade-off of what operator wants, but also what the taxation and the and the treasury would need. And while you've been doing this work, have you been engaging with industry with um oil and gas production companies? Have you been engaging with government to hear what their views are on the current situation? Uh, yeah, so, well, I, I, am very, I am very privileged to have Alex Kemp as my supervisor. Uh, he's a very renowned uh, industry expert and he has done a lot of probing with, uh, with the industry and also with the, with the government to see more or less what are the, the current rates on the decommissioning security. I've attended a lot of webinars from OG UK and the WASHOP webinars on decommissioning. Uh, and I'm hoping to have more conversations uh, during the next months, uh, now face-to-face, -face, well, not face-to-face -face, obviously because of the pandemic, but having these conversations with the industry to, to more or less uh, see their views of, of how or how they think each instrument's fair. Uh, but nowadays, I am relying on what Alex Kemp uh, has shown me about the probing of the 
of these instruments. But it's also clear that uh, many of the companies are now interested in how they can save some cash and how they can use this in other instruments and also how to better finish or do the decommissioning. Uh, now that you touch on the point of industry, one thing I, I learned from uh, going from working in a seminar about this was that nowadays the companies are facing a balancing act. They don't know if they will need to to push back the commissioning because now the resources are really limited. But if they push the commissioning back, they will also find themselves that uh, in the future, uh, there may be a scarce capital to deploy. There may not be enough service operators to make the decommissioning. So costs might go up, but nowadays they need the cash. So they are making this hard balancing act. And they require a lot of help by the by the government. Apparently they were about to to put some deductions and some tax reliefs on some of the decommissioning uh, drivers of costs, but it's still to be to be known. There's no been no news on this. So yes, yeah, so it's a very difficult time now for industry. Mm -hmm. So your PhD involves assessing the different instruments used to provide financial security, but your work is also looking at the mechanisms that could be put in place to relieve licensees of the in perpetuity liability. What does imperpetuity mean and why does it exist within decommissioning? Okay, uh, great question, Rachel. So uh, to talk about imperpetuity liability, I, I think I will need to give some context on this. So even though questions uh, regarding the financial security of decommissioning might seem new or might seem current, actually the debates and the most of the, the discussions are essentially the same as they were in the late 70s. Uh, in 1978, the West Sol field was the first field to be decommissioned. In the UKCS, it was a small field. It didn't come with many difficulties. But after the downturn of the 2014-2015 market, and also, for example, the Brent's part decommissioning, a lot of questions regarding the profitability or the, or the capacity of the UKCS to have the commissioning really uh, weren't relevant. Uh, but the issues remain the same, how to best handle joint operations agreements and corporate liability. That's one of the most important and pressing uh, issues. However, uh, since the discussion of the Commission of the Law of the Sea, the, the, let's say the United Nations favored uh, complete removal of installations. This was difficult for the UK uh, to accept because most or many of the facilities installed at the time really were really costly to the commission. And so the UK lobbied heavily in favor of allowing partial decommissioning based on certain criteria. Uh, this was accepted at the convention and so partial removal was accepted. The problem with partial removal is that structures have, are left behind and someone needs to own responsibility for them. So enter in perpetuity liability. And one curious thing about the perpetuity liability is that it's not uh, currently law. So the base department has issued some guidance notes on the commissioning of, of oil and gas installations. And it says that residual liability remains with the owners in perpetuity and continued contact will be required uh, with the regulator. This, this issue is a part of a guidance, not law. Uh, and it has not yet to be contested really hard in court. However, uh, as you may know, if you want to adhere to, as an operator, you would like to adhere to guidance so that you are accepted, for example, during the commissioning uh, programs. If field owners fail to account for this interpretation by the government, then they are at trouble or at risk of not being approved uh, for their programs of decommissioning and the security. So they will need to accept this. Uh, however, 
there are there are many questions and problems I see with with this in perpetuity model. And what are the current challenges associated with the model? Just uh, for example, one of the most obvious question: What happens decades or maybe exaggerating centuries from now, and a company does not longer exists? Uh, how can you make this perpetuity liability work? Uh, so the licensing regime in the UKCS states that once abandoned, wells are returned to the oil and gas authority. It will be then challenging to prove negligence for f any future leaks or, or something. It is also not practical to believe in perpetual, uh, perpetual liability. Even nuclear decommissioning and carbon capture initiatives impose some limits on the liability, which allows companies to quantify risks. They may be really long for the liability, but they, they allow this quantification. Um, so these are practical reasons of why this perpetuity liability is difficult. Uh, I think the, the solution will have to go through a well-defined decommissioning program that states and limits the scope of the liability to certain uh, structures, for example, pipelines left in place, blocked wells. Uh, it may be part of a negotiation between the different operators and the regulator so that there are no loose ends and each company knows what installation or what structure specifically they are liable for in perpetuity. Now, the imperpetuity liability doesn't mean that uh, operators need to pay financial security all the way through the through the ages, you know. It just means that if anything were to happen with that structure, uh, who, who is responsible for it? And the OJA has said that, well, it is with the last owner of the regime. And has it had an impact on the ability of traders to sell their assets? Yeah, so decommissioning, <laughs> decommissioning security has been thought of a very strong barrier to asset transfer, and I'm glad you touched that point because, uh, and it's just not not just about uh, uh, the perpetuity liability. It's also about something about corporate liability that through Section 29 notices, a lot of parties may be ultimately called upon to fulfill the decommissioning liability. So even before the question of if imperpetuity liability will lead to problems to asset transfers, we have that these problems exist now with some of the current uh, problems or, or some of the current regulatory framework and how wide the powers for the of the Secretary of State are to call anyone that has owned some stake on a installation or off offshore structure. Uh, one case that would be really nice to 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 look out in the next months is here is. Uh, Hurricanes uh, field, where now they have some, they have to change the decommissioning security agreement. Uh, other companies like Chrysler Oil will also buy Premier Oil, and Premier is about to decommissioning one one of its biggest fields. And there will be the issue of security and how they handle this. So it will be nice to to see how this unfolds. Uh, and then again, also, this maybe it is not clear from the guidance if this in perpetuity liability will be transferred also from the seller to the buyer. And as regulation currently stands, I think that it remains with both and it will follow the change just like any Section 29 notice will come. Thank you very much. So what mechanisms could be brought in to ease the burden placed on licensees with the impartuity model? I think that the first provision needs to be uh, to give operators uh, or companies some way of quantifying the risk of this residual liability. Uh, as I said, by maybe defining clearly and correctly in each of the decommissioning programs uh, what is expected to be of the residual liability and, and on which specific structures uh, 
you will have it, will be nice or will be important for the operators to have this in order so they can quantify their risks. Also, uh, we need to be very careful about not making a domino effect. For example, if uh, nowadays the UKCS is a really integrated and interconnected system in all the production on the UKCA. So for example, it is possible that a pipeline serves an oil field, but it also serves another different oil fields from you. And if you have to decommission this specific oil field, then this pipeline that is part of that development must need to be decommissioned. How will this affect the other ones? And until what point is that pipeline, for example, that you will need to be taken care of because it's serving also other fields? How does this happen? So there are a lot of questions and difficulties that also that, that I think that just passed by one mechanism is that the government needs to really issue or enact some legislation or framework or regulatory framework that clearly de defines the responsibles so that they can quantify it. And do you think the current regime of financial security and the impetuity model, does it help the net zero agenda? Okay, so, well, I think that uh, the net zero agenda, I, I don't still see a clear uh, a clear cut way that going from this perpetuity liability to the net zero agenda. At the end, the obligation is there to the commission. The obligation is there to have this uh, liability, to this residual liability. And so, and, it, and you can say that, okay, well, if the work is done, okay. And if the closeout report is done, okay. And remember that the OGA uh, and the OPRED need to sign on the finished decommission work then you might expect to not have any issues or troubles in the future because everything was checked and the decommissioning was finished and everything was finished okay, apparently, of course. So more or less, I think that maybe that what the, 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 the commissioning regime should focus on is in making the decommissioning activity really a part of the new UK transition to the net energy, uh, to the net energy and the net zero ambitions. Uh, what I mean by this, I mean that by making the commissioning activity attractive in the UKCS, you can begin making a lot of new jobs or this famous green recovery that's been talking now, for example, a lot in Scotland, and the commissioning can be part of this. So by allowing a good financial security regime and a good liability regime, you will facilitate the commissioning to happen. And as this happens, you will help to meet the net zero ambitions. But yes, that, that will be like a very, like going through or around this. I don't see really a clear cut way how the decommissioning or the liability will lead to a better net zero ambition achievement. So what impact do you hope your research will have? Well, I hope my research uh, has an impact beyond academia. I don't want it to remain just in, in academia as a good study. I really wanted to make it useful for decision making and for the government. Um, with my supervisors, I've been talking a lot about this, and I also agree that it's necessary for us to make a good provisions of, of understanding, but that can give really clear cut principles and evidence or decisions to be made. So I want the results from this research to be adopted to maximize the value of oil and gas extraction in the UKCS. So they are useful for uh, the UK to follow the MERE strategy, the maximizing economic recovery strategy, to shed light into how operator and government can best respond to the financial security problem. Uh, how can they understand which or what instrument is the best for their specific needs? Because as I, as I said, there is no uh, size fits all approach to the, the commissioning instruments. And so it should be used, I, I hope that it can be used as a guidebook, as a manual on, you know, you, you meet this criteria, then this is the best 
instrument for you to use regarding what your needs are and, and who you are and what type of company you are. So I hope it to have a really important impact, a practical impact, uh, uh, and I think uh, we will be doing it in the right way. And is there lessons that can be learned from overseas, from other areas where oil and gas extraction takes place? Or is there an opportunity for us to influence overseas governments on decommissioning? Yeah, actually, Rachel, I think that's the, the second point you made. Actually, uh, I think the, the UK CS is now leading a lot of these discussions in decommissioning. And I actually, the, the knowledge, I think, will be exported to other geographies. Uh, I'm thinking about, for example, the Gulf of Mexico and also in the South China Sea that there's a lot of activity offshore. Uh, so I think that maybe by helping or by... Uh, developing our knowledge in these issues of decommissioning through the work, for example, that made the, the National Decommissioning Center makes and also the University of Aberdeen and all these research projects. I think actually what the possibilities to export our knowledge and to be able to, to be useful for other geographies and other, and other countries. Uh, we can be the spearhead of all these developments and for sure uh, it can be then used, these same regulations or liabilities can then be used to inform decisions of all our policy in other countries. Thank you very much for a very interesting overview of your PhD project and I wish you the best of luck as you complete it. Arturo, thank you very much for joining me. Rachel, thank you very much again and have a nice day. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. But for now, thanks for joining us and keep an eye out for our other Explorathon Lunch Bites podcasts. As I said at the beginning, we'd love to get your comments and feedback, so please use the hashtag Explorathon20 or tag us on Twitter or Facebook at ERNScott. You can also email the University's Public Engagement with Research Unit by emailing peru at ebdn.ac.uk. If you're interested in finding out about the other events taking place as part of Explorathon 2020, you can visit the website at www.explorathon.co.uk. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen.